Welcome to the top 10, where we explore some of the most influential films from different movie genres. I'm Vicky Sayers, and I'm joined by film critic and broadcaster James Cameron Wilson. Hi, James. Hi, Vicky. So good to hear you again. And you too. Today we are starting with the top 10 documentary movies. We are indeed. And, and how do you feel about documentary movies, James? I think they've had a bad rap. When I was growing up, everybody thought documentaries were really boring and there were very few released theatrically. And there were some outstanding examples like the wartime one, fires were burning. And it all changed, I think, on a big, big scale with the release of two films, March of the Penguins and Bowling for Columbine, which made at the boxer's office over a hundred million dollars each. Suddenly the documentary was a commercial medium. And since then it's been a golden age of the documentary. But I think we should mention those wonderful films like Nightmare, which was produced by the GPO film unit, made to celebrate the work of the mailman who operated the locomotives that carried the country's correspondence from London to Glasgow. And it wasn't very long, and it's not in my top 10, mm -hmm. any more than Grand Canyon, The Hidden Secrets, which was 34 <laughs> minutes, but is the second highest grossing, grossing documentary in film history. Wow. But it was on IMAX, so it was a very specialist release. The highest grossing documentary of all time is Michael Jackson's This Is It from 2009, mm. chronicling the singer's world tour of the same name. And that pocketed $252 million. But the top 10 that I have selected is based on artistic or technical merit and critical standing. But Going back to Nightmare, I think what was really lovely about it was that W.H. Auden actually had a verse commentary on it set to the music of Benjamin Britten. Okay. So this is a minor classic, and it was wonderful that it was produced by the GPO film unit. And other landmarks include Mike Wadley's Woodstock of 1969, based on the music festival, which was a three-hour-plus epic. Wow. And for a while, the documentary was mainly represented by music-oriented music films, like the concert for Bangladesh, which I remember seeing oh, in 1972. <laughs> Martin Scorsese's The Last Wolves, featuring the band, with a slew of special guests like Bob Dylan, Neil Diamond, Joni Mitchell, Van Morrison. And then after a while, what was really popular in theatrically released documentaries were films about insects. And there was a film in 1971, which I saw as a child, called The Hellstrom Chronicle, which right. left a huge impression on me. And then there was a French film in 1996 called Microcosmos, which was extraordinary, which took a magnifying glass to the, the world of creepy crawlies of mm. every stripe. And then IMA another big IMAX film was Bugs, narrated by Judy Dench. By this time, I was taking my own young daughter to see that. The wildlife documentary was pretty much governed by Walt Disney, but they were pretty toe-curlingly schmaltzy. And, <laughs> um, until, of course, before David Attenborough came along and made such things respectable. But nowadays, 
Well, one of my all-time favourite directors is Alex Gibney, who has made such films as Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, Taxi to the Dark Side, which is a really hard watch, Mea Maxima Culpa, Silence of the House of God, and We Steal Secrets, the story of WikiLeaks. I sort of think of him as the Steven Spielberg of documentarians because he knows how to tell a good story. Mm. And ultimately, documentaries work when they're telling a story. And they've had this bad rap of being boring, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. If they have a story to tell, and if that story is told well, the non-fiction film can be just as powerful and absorbing. So it's time to make your case, James, with your top ten. Okay, I'm going to start with a film I have only caught up with because ever since I've been a film critic, people have been raving about this film and it's recently been released on Blu-ray and they very kindly sent me a copy. It's called Man with a Movie Camera and it was made in 1929 by somebody called Ziga Vertov, who is a pioneer of non-fiction filmmaking. And the film at the beginning boasts we are using no actors and no sets. Right. And it is uh, it, uh, once a document of the hard-working, happy nation of the early Soviet Union. But it's also a celebration of cinema, utilising all the tricks of the trade to amazing effect. And back in 1929, he was using split screen, superimposition, freeze frames, jump cuts, speeded up film, and that wonderful device of reverse motion. There are no intertitles either. It is mesmerising. And being able to go back 91 years and see the world as it was then and to see those real faces. Yeah. And he describes it as um, a complete separation from the language of theatre and literature. No sets, no actors. And he begins the film itself. It's very meta because he begins in a cinema as the rows of seats dip into position all by themselves. And you see the, the audience coming into the cinema and settling down and you see the projectionist at his projector. Right. And then the orchestra setting itself into the pit. And throughout, you see him filming everyday life in Russia. Sometimes he's perched precariously on the edge of a speeding car and you actually see him hanging out with his camera. Wow. And he's everywhere with his camera. And it's very energetic. It starts very sleepily as the people in Russia start to wake up and you see people getting out of their beds. You see the homeless on their park benches. And gradually the film gains momentum. And you also see his wife, Elizaveta, actually piecing together the shots in the editing room. So you see the whole process as the day continues. And suddenly you're seeing all these people, very thin people, incidentally, rushing <laughs> around places like Kiev, Moscow and Odessa as their day picks up. And it's a celebration of automation as well. And the result is a supremely exciting experience, a visit to a bygone era and an urgent homage to the ordinary Russian man, woman and child, aided by Vertov's urgent music and his wife's editing as he gets more and more frantic. And even today, as I say, 91 years on, it is an exhilarating watch, packed with awe, humour, and indeed irony. The British Film Institute magazine, Sight and Sound, 
voted it the best documentary of all time. So, but was it like one of the first ones? One of the first feature length, would you say? Pretty much. Um, yeah, he did Kino Eye, which mm. I've also seen, which was a short. And again, this reser- reverse photography. And he did a sequence where you see a steak on a plate with vegetables. Mm-hmm. And then gradually you see he reverses it until you end up at the very end of the cow, it's the, well, the bull, the cow, um, in a field yeah. in the pasture. And he reversed it and you see the whole process of that cow ending up as meat. But he yeah. reversed it starting with the meat. It sounds like a really complex film then. It is. He was yeah. an extraordinary filmmaker in 1929. And that was before you were born. Just a little bit before. And I'm going to move on to my number two, which yep. is a really difficult one. But because of the impact it had on film generally, it's directed by Lenny Riefenstahl, mm-hmm. who was a, a German. The film is Triumph of the Will, and that was released in 1935. And she started out as an actress there, uh, and aged just 30. She directed her first film, which was called The Blue Light, which she also produced and she also starred in. Mm-hmm. And it did very well in London and Paris. And it came to the attention of none other than Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Uh, have you heard of Triumph of the Will? I think we've briefly talked about it in a previous. We've spoken about Leni Riefenstahl and her, her kind of questionable connection to Hitler. So I was prepared for this one. Yeah. Okay. Well, he commissioned her to write, produce, and direct Triumph of the Will, right. celebrating the Nazi Party rally at Nuremberg. Hmm. And as a documentary and as a piece of propaganda, it is actually a masterpiece, regardless of its subject matter. And you can understand the way she builds it up, the sort of sense of euphoria of joining this movement. It just shows you the power of film hmm. and how people were moved to join the Nazi Party. Utilising the then novel use of intercutting and montage, she builds this giddying impression of power and glory, exaltation, really. And today, it is a very frightening film to watch, yet goes Mm. some way in explaining the enormous peel of the Fuhrer, who is displayed like this Wagnerian god. I suppose it's quite amazing to have something like that left behind, because I think with, with matters of history like like the Nazis and everything that happened, you can kind of find yourself wondering, well, how could anyone have been so wrong about someone or so duped? But then from what you're saying, this film really does explain how that can happen. Mm -hmm. And it is a record for us to look at today. Yeah, Uh, Also, and the subsequent Olympia, which you made in 1938. Together, they are probably the most efficient examples of propaganda cinema ever made. Mm. When you could get away with such. Yeah. Thankfully, not anymore. (laughs) Well, yes, indeed. Although, well, we'll perhaps not so blatant. (laughs) I'm going to talk about a film now, which has always been regarded as one of the great classics, which Marcel Offels, who was uh, a great documentarian himself, he said this is the greatest documentary about contemporary history ever made. And the film is Shoah, made in 1985. It took over a decade to put together. And the late Claude Landsman collated over 350 hours of interviews with the survivors of Auschwitz and other camps and the ghettos of the Second World War. 
It is, I warn you, Vicky. Mm. It's a long watch. It's over nine hours long. Wow. But it is a testament to the human spirit. Yeah. And as an interviewer, Lanceman, uh, he took no prisoners in his quest to find the details of how this all happened. Cinematically, it doesn't attempt to compete with the virtuosity of Lenny Riefenstahl or Ziga Verto, but it is an extraordinary humanitarian monument, document, really. Mm. But it's not an easy watch. And again, mm. only if you've got nine hours <laughs> to spare. Or maybe nine days, an hour over each day. Yeah, yeah, you could do it that way. Um, I, I think that's probably a good way to approach it because mm. it is... You wouldn't, have a, you wouldn't have that in the cinemas these days, would you? A nine-hour film. Uh, you certainly wouldn't. have to have about three intervals. <laughs> Indeed. Um, going back to propaganda, mm. the person who really turned documentary into a populist form is an American called Michael Moore, who is very much a man of the people. He dressed down in very sort of uh, blue-collar outfits and baseball cap. and His film... Fahrenheit 9-11, released in 2004, I think is probably the highest grossing daddy of them all because not counting Michael Jackson or the 34-minute Grand Canyon, The Hidden Secrets, yeah. this was a proper documentary released theatrically and it made a huge amount of money. Um, if Lenny Riefenstahl uh, elevated the technique and power of the genre, I think Michael Moore made it accessible and entertaining. He was the antithesis of the old school jacket and tie BBC reporter. He was one of them. He was the people. And it was the people and Michael Moore against the establishment with generous helpings of comic irony and outrage. Mm -hmm. And it very much adopting a satirical, satirical tone. Michael Moore opens Fahrenheit 9-11 by telling us this is not a dream. It really happened. And what really happened is that George W. Bush was sworn into the White House when most people voted for Al Gore. And of course, that's happened recently with the yeah. last president. <laughs> As you know, more people actually voted for Hillary Clinton. Uh, and he was the director of the Oscar-winning bowling for Columbine, which was about disarming America. Mm. And he was the scribe of the best-selling Stupid White Men. But he lays out the facts, like letting off small bombs, all accompanied by a mocking musical soundtrack. It's old news that Bush won the presidency by fixing the votes in Florida, but the film still exerts quite an indignant sting. He does shuffle the facts to his advantage, mm. but he does kindle an incendiary attack on the corruption, hypocrisy and greed of the Bush administration. I can't wait to see his film on Donald Trump. <laughs> Me neither, by the sounds of it. But I think even though we know we're being manipulated by nimble propaganda, it's still very compelling drama. And it's also very funny. Michael Moore shows photogenic children playing in the streets of Baghdad. Then he cuts to the bombing of 20, 2003 on the 20th of March. He does reveal some astonishing statistics and he really goes for the solar plexus yeah. with ground level vox populi. I mean, this is documentary filmmaking of the most gripping kind. A, a comedy drama, really, with a kick and a cause. It is an extraordinary film. And I suppose I would also like to include Michael Moore's Sicko, Michael Moore's Bowling for Columbine, 
many of Michael Moore's films, but what I'm trying to do is embrace every type of documentary non-fiction film. So yeah. I'm going to go on to a film called Man on Wire, made in 2008. So this is one that I have heard of, but I couldn't tell you anything about, like I've heard of that title, but that's it. I know nothing about it other than that. It's even more poignant today because what Philippe Petit achieved. I think yes. I just remembered. Yeah, yes. he, he wanted to walk, walk across two buildings, right? On, on, a, tight, on a tight wire. Yeah, or... Well, first he caused enormous amount of publicity by walking on a high wire between yeah. the towers of uh, Notre Dame, which of course was illegal and he's always being arrested. But his dream, his ultimate human endeavor was to walk between the two towers mm. of the World Trade Center, which is an extraordinary engineering feat, even to get the wire up there. And this story, it's, it's almost like a thriller. And, you and there are some black and white reenactments and you follow him for years as he plots out this dream. There are some somewhat corny musical choices like The Lark Ascending, Fleetwood Mac's Albatross, etc. Yeah. But otherwise, I think the film allows Pettit and his collaborators to tell their tale with appropriate glee. There's a very sort of mischievous nature to this film. It, it did go on to win the Oscar for Best Documentary of 2008. But when we finally see him actually achieve his aim, it's quite extraordinary. The, the only sad thing about the film is, of course, you can't really be up there with a the camera. How they even broke into the World Trade Center is like a political thriller. Mm. And they, they made a film called The Wire with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, which is a dramatization of Philippe Petit's extraordinary endeavor. And that, because you're actually up there, um, it, <laughs> If, if you suffer from vertigo or acrophobia, to use the technical term, it's a really hard watch. Yeah, I, I, I think one should really see Man on Wire. So I'm going to move on from a great Frenchman to an extraordinary Brazilian in a film called Senna, made by another remarkable documentarian called Asif Capadia. This is uh, Senna 2010. I think documentaries about men at the top of their game are always interesting. And the Brazilian racing driver, Ayrton Senna, was also something of a crusader, a privileged boyish Samaritan, I think, in cahoots with God. He was an outspoken man who operated with his, within his own altered state on the track. And he changed the sport within which he flourished. And I'm a huge fan of Asif Kapadia. And I think maybe, I mean, Senna is generally considered to, to be the landmark film, the greatest film about sport. There are many examples that I could rattle off to you. Hoop Dreams jumps to mind. Uh, the one with Muhammad Ali, um, When We Were Kings. Um, but this is the first one that really broke through, that got a lot of attention. Personally, he went on to direct Amy, which was his eye-opening, shocking, and deeply moving portrait of the singer-songwriter Amy Winehouse. Now, not being a sports person, and I really not, I, mean, I just don't understand sport other than me going, you know, for my usual runs. Mm. I am interested in music and I am interested in personality. And I thought Amy was such an eye-opening, shocking and deeply moving portrait of a human being. 
and for me that's a personal but based on historical perspective i'm putting senna in my top 10 because nobody had seen a film like this before and one of ac Capadia's great things is to just put the footage out there he unlike man and why he doesn't do dramatizations he just puts the footage there right uh, with narration and it's amazing how powerful it can be now this is a real special film and i i would really like you to go and see this okay and i don't want to tell you too much about it <laughs> okay title because it's a story and it's told like a narrative and i knew nothing about it when i watched it and i was so amazed by the story that I kept on getting people around to my private cinema <laughs> and showing it to them. I said, you've got to see this film. I was crusading for it. It's called Searching for Sugar Man. Have you right. seen it? No, and, and it's a sort of perplexing title, isn't it? You don't quite know. I mean, I couldn't guess what that's about. And that is, I think, part of its great power is mm. you don't know where it's going. But according to one source, the head of Sussex Records, no less, the singer-songwriter, Rodriguez, he sold six albums in the USA. Yeah. Yet in Cape Town, he was more famous than the Rolling Stones. Yeah, I've never heard of him. Well, that's the whole point. <laughs> okay. How can one person in this day and age be so famous and so exalted and adored, adulated in somewhere as big as Cape Town, yeah. but the rest of the world doesn't know him. The irony is that Rodriguez was an American singer who lived in Detroit right. and in one last desperate act of self-publicity, <laughs> he set himself alight on stage. Oh. He was what? never to know that his only two albums, which are terrific, by the way, I love his music. <laughs> okay. Now that I uh, bought it. But his only two albums had sold half a million copies in South Africa. And at the time he set himself alight on stage, he didn't know this. And he certainly never saw a penny from the revenue. But the story doesn't end there. And like all great documentaries, this first effort from the Swedish director, Malik Benjelul, tells an extraordinary tale. It's an elegant, rounded portrait of an enigmatic musician that nobody seemed to know. Sugar Man benefits from a rousing set of numbers from a sing singer which one critic described as even greater than Bob Dylan. And I think the fact that nobody knows who he is really adds to the story. And the story does develop in really unexpected ways. And it was really sort of OMG all the way through <laughs> the second half. Equally remarkable, I think, is the background to the making of the documentary. Benjaloul had never made a film before, and after four years of shooting, searching for Sugar Man, where he went on this quest around the globe, he ran out of money. Oh. And in the event, he had this amazing story in the can, but he couldn't afford an editor, he couldn't afford a composer or an animator. And there are lovely little animated interludes throughout the film um, in order to complete it. So he taught himself to edit, he taught himself to compose, and he completed the picture himself as editor and composer. Wow. And animate. And documentaries don't come better than this. This is a real 
personal favorite i think because i engaged with it mm. so emotionally and i was so surprised by the story which i haven't given away vicky you haven't you've just made it just enough that i want to watch it you have to watch it i'm gonna uh, which have is to why i love the next film which is in a strange way even more fascinating because the woman who made it laura poitras didn't know the story that she was filming filming she was approached by somebody she didn't know about. And it, it, again, it's like a conspiracy political thriller. And you follow her. And she did make a film um, about the American occupation of Iraq called My Country, My Country. Mm. And about Guantanamo called The Oath. And this film just happened as she continued filming it. But what we don't realize was what an extraordinary story it is. Citizen Four was the tag that the whistleblower Edward Snowden used to contact Laura Poitras. Right. And Poitras was already on the watch list of the National Security Agent, the NSA, for having made her first two films. So this is all very much undercover. What followed for Poitras was the revelation of, of a government-endorsed violation of the rights and confidentiality of every American citizen. You know about Edward Snowden. Yeah. And I was watching this the other day, with somebody, he said, who is this man, this deep? <laughs> he looks so young on camera and he doesn't tell his name at first. And she has to go to a secret meeting in Hong Kong to meet him in a hotel. You never see Laura Poitras, but you hear her voice as, she's, as this story unfolds in front of her. And he doesn't, he doesn't say who he is, but there's a journalist from The Guardian who said, well, can we know about you? And he says, as Edward Snowden says, as I'll probably never be ever be allowed back into America, these are the facts about me. My name is Edward Snowden. And of course, there's a gasp. OMG again. <laughs> and it just unfolds. And gradually, these other characters start being introduced into the narrative. People like Piers Morgan, Julian Assange, Barack Obama. And it becomes this star-studded conspiracy thriller. Wow. It's quite an extraordinary story anyway, but the fact that Laura Poitras was there as it was happening, and she was instrumental in leaking this story to the world. So it's a really important film. It's not only a thriller, but it's a film that, it's a story that had to be told. And Laura Poitras told this story as it was unfolding. It is quite gripping to say the least. And she's done a really good job in really cranking up the drama. That sounds amazing. I, the way you have described that is, but is is like um, it's like a film, like an actual film would be. If not, I mean by that, like a, a manufactured film. The way that his name isn't revealed immediately, and you're left wondering who he is when you should really know because you're obviously watching a documentary. That sounds really clever. And that's what I like. And that shares the same thing with searching for Sugar Man because the film unfolds. You don't know where the story is yeah. going, and you get pulled into the narrative. And good documentaries are about storytelling. Whereas the, I think it's interesting because I think documentaries on screen that are being theatrically released are so much better than they used to be. But documentaries on television are so much worse because at the start, they tell you where you're going mm -hmm. and they say, we're going to take you on a journey. And then they have little excerpts of the documentary that you're going to sit there. And you, as you're sitting watching the documentary, you think, haven't I already seen this? Yeah. And they, documentaries on television, I thought used to be really good, particularly 
programs like Horizon. British documentary filmmaking was the envy of the world, Vicky. And now I'm afraid it's really all gone downhill. Mm. They're not telling stories. They're spoon feeding you. It's the lowest common denominator. That is exactly what I was going to say, spoon feeding. Yeah, yeah. It's tabloid journalism. Yeah. Documentaries now. Even the BBC, I'm afraid. I mean, you should try. I mean, I'm sure you have. Try watching any of the American uh, documentaries like on Netflix. It, you, you can't get through the first five minutes without them repeating the same kind of cutaway shot, um, like the same picture or something that, mm-hmm. that then you, you end up seeing the whole way through. It's kind of like expecting you to have forgotten what you've seen five minutes ago. Well, even National Geographic now are, are making really dumb documentaries oh. that become so popular because they're cheap to make and they yeah. can actually make money. Well, there you go. That's the money machine for you, James. Indeed. Now we've got two documentaries left. Yeah. And they just get better, really. <laughs> okay, great. This is called They Shall Not Grow Old, released in 2018. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I can guess what that's about. Yes. And it was commissioned, uh, well, Peter Jackson, no Ooh. less, approached by the Imperial War Museum to wow. give their footage a new angle to coincide with the centenary of the armistice. Yeah. And he knew not what a personal odyssey it would become. It's very interesting because there are comparisons with this to 1917, where Sam Mendes, or Sir Sam Mendes now, uh, was inspired by the stories of his grandfather. Mm. Likewise, Peter Jackson dedicated this film to his grandfather, Sergeant William Jackson, uh, who fought for the British in the war. And Peter Jackson hit on the idea of restoring the 100 hours of footage sent to him by the Imperial War Museum and relying on the advances of modern digital expertise, he decided to colorize the material as well, adding sound effects and dialogue with the help of sound editors and lip readers. So what he had was he had all this footage, and in the end, he conducted a further 600 hours of interviews. Wow. Which were then played over the scenes. And it was all very... I mean, you know what old footage is, where people seem to be walking very jig- in a jiggly yeah, yeah. way. And, but it was all being meticulously restored and then colourised. But what that does is you get the impression, because we've seen so many recent war films, like 1917, and you have to keep on reminding yourself, this is actually real. Mm. This was happening then. And, and what I find really interesting is how the mood changes. One voice tells us that when the war was not very active, it was really rather fun. It was not very dangerous, a sort of out-of-door camping holiday with the boys, with a slight spice of danger to make it interesting. And then, of course, it continues, and we see footage that we've never seen before in so-called glorious colour. And the odd thing about They Shall Not Grow Old is that due to our familiarity with war films, these pristine images just do feel like they've been dramatised. But look closer and the soldiers merrily puffing on their cigarettes and pipes on an exercise march. You then see details that you don't often see in modern films, like the blackened, ungainly teeth that everybody had back then, and those uncertain smiles, unused to the intrusion of a movie camera. Yeah. And that reminds you that, yes, this was only too real. 
The footage is remarkable and its transformation into 21st century cinema is completely overwhelming. It's, I think, of all the documentaries I've ever seen, Vicky, it's the one that has stayed with me longest in my dreams when I woke up. Wow. Just those images. And he has pulled off an extraordinary coup. Mm. That sounds amazing. I mean, the, the amount of personal effort that went into it as well really recommends it, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, there are two types of documentary. And it was very difficult to choose my final one in my top 10 list because I'd seen the four Sama, which was a video diary made for an unborn child called Sama, which okay. went on to get the main critical kudos. But I think a better film is The Cave, because either you show a series of images and overall you end up getting an impression of something that the filmmaker is trying to convey, mm -hmm. or you tell a story. And The Cave tells a story. And a remarkable Syrian filmmaker called Ferris Fayad. But it's two stories. It's a story about this hospital underground, nicknamed The Cave, but it's also the story about Dr. Amani, who is a woman in her late 20s who tried to do the right thing under fire, even though she was a woman, and ran the pedi pediatric unit of the hospital. Her husband felt she shouldn't do the right thing and should come home and look after the family and the kids. But she wanted to connect with the children and tell them that even under fire, they had an obligation to when the war in Syria ever ends, to maybe study to be doctors, study to be teachers themselves. Mm. And she was sort of talking to these young children. But the opening film is a shot of um, Ghouta, a suburb of Damascus in Syria. And it's a stunning opening shot. You just look at it and think, wow. And then, a few moments later, it explodes. Oh. The whole city disappears in, in your eyes. And then, if that's not enough, in the same shot, Vicky, the camera descends underground and you follow it into the labyrinth of the cave and you follow it down these little tunnels to where the hospital is. And it's one of the most overwhelming opening shots. Now, I can only presume that they knew in advance where the Russian bombers... I was going to say, yeah. How do you predict that? They exactly. must have had some kind of intel. Yeah. And he set up his camera. He wasn't there himself, but he, he hired a group of cameramen who, and they were in constant contact on WhatsApp and so forth to make this film. So he made it at a distance. And for over five years, Russian warplanes have been screaming over the city, delivering death in these ear-splitting packages. And because I saw it in a cinema, do you remember those days? <laughs> yes, those are the days. <laughs> it had a huge impact on me because in surround sound, you really got the impact of these Russian planes flying around and they are deafening. And entire streets disappear in clouds of smoke and rubble. It's a deeply affecting film, but it's a film about a personality. And Amani Balour uh, really believes, she, she's like a mother, a modern mother Teresa. And she instructs her staff to do the impossible, to keep on smiling for the children. 
while asking to herself, is God really watching? Uh, I, I fell in love with this woman. And then later she dares to tell us that religion is just a tool for men. So it's about misogyny under fire, as well as the Russians. And it sort of begins with somebody asking, why are the Russians killing our children? And what was really sad was when the producer went to pick up the award at the London Film Critics Circle Awards, where I was at the time. Yeah. And she said, you need to see this film and you need to understand that yesterday a hospital was bombed, the last hospital in Guta. These mm. things are still happening today. And yeah. a similar speech was said, um, I noticed when Forsama picked up awards at the Oscars. Um, it's a very important film. And I, I think why it works so well is A, it's telling a story mm. and you see things, little, little details, like one of the surgeons who uses classical music on his iPhone. And he says, we don't have any painkillers, but this is a pretty good second. Oh, wow. And there's those little details that keep on coming back to me. And it's an essential work of cinema that demands to be seen at the next G20 summit. Well, James, that's a, a bit of a sad note to end on, but nevertheless, a necessary one. Thanks very much for your latest top 10. Thank you, Vicky. It's been my pleasure. And that's it for this episode of the top 10. Join us next time for more.